Esther, oh, Esther chapter 3, beginning, actually I'm going to start at the end of chapter 2, in verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book... the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for, for the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gates said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was heard when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews." the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Let's pray. Father, again, we just um, look to you, Lord, that you would minister to us, speak into our our hearts, God, and that we would um, yield to you, Lord. We need you. We want to, to hear your voice, God, as we look at your word, and to be instructed by you, God. And we thank you for your willingness to teach us and that you are, you are constantly at work, God, through your word, that we might be people of your word and that you might say of us that we do know your thoughts and that our ways are your ways and that there would be no inconsistency, God, between what you reveal of yourself in your word and what is true of us. In Jesus' name, amen. I noted um, last week when we started this study on Esther that um, clearly the sovereignty of God is at display in this book and also God's providence or God's foresight in being able to see what's going to take place and work all things for his glory and our good. Only God can do that. And this book is written, I believe, in principle to show us that God is at work and that we can always have hope in this world and, and not be overcome by the evil intentions of people. Because no matter what people may mean for evil, as Joseph said to his brothers, God means it for good. And he is so sovereign that he can see in advance of what people are going to do and anticipate it, plan for it, and accomplish his will. He's an amazing God. Um, 
I, don't, I have never invented anything. Uh, I don't think I probably ever will invent anything. Uh, I don't have that kind of mind. I, I, I really respect it when I see it in others. But even if we were all inventors, there is one of the problems with any invention is that the inventor has to, especially if he puts it on the market, has to be able to anticipate all the different ways that people could use that invention. So he can guard himself against lawsuits, right? And so he has to put warning labels all over it and everything else. So no matter what it is, I, I heard uh, from a lawyer that there was a man who decided he would trim his hedge with his lawnmower. And so he, lawnmower running, he just grabbed the lawnmower by the deck to raise it up and trim his hedge. Problem was, with that blade spinning, eight fingers go underneath the deck, all he was left with was his thumbs. And he sued the lawnmower manufacturer because there was nothing on the deck that said don't use this lawnmower for a hedge trimmer. And he won. It's amazing anybody ever invents anything. Because we don't have the foresight to see all the different possibilities of what other people would do. And that's just a mechanical device. But then you think about our God. Where he's not dealing with mechanical devices, he's dealing with people. And every day, every person is making hundreds of decisions. And God knows in advance what every person is going to do with all the hundreds of decisions that every person will make every day and all of the unintended consequences of all those decisions. And now we've got 7 billion people on the face of the earth. And God is able to manage what every person is going to do, anticipate what they're going to do, and still work it for his will to be done on earth. He's an amazing God. And if we think that God is not big enough to do that, I think this is why God has hung all the billions and trillions of stars in the heavens. So we can see how God is even controlling all of that. And even on the, on the, on the micro level, more and more biologists are telling us we don't even begin to understand all the complexity of a single cell amoeba. There is so much complexity in the natural world. It ought, to be able to, it ought to inform us that God is not unable to anticipate and, and to manage all the decisions of all the people on the earth at the same time and accomplish what he is after. He's a big God. It's not too difficult for him. So when we come here to this chapter, there is... Um, um, a bit of a thing going on here that's hard for us to understand if, if all we had was the book of Esther. We wouldn't understand it. But it, it, it leads off by this little, almost again, incidental trivia that while Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, chapter 2, verse 21, he hears of a plot to assassinate the king. Now, by the way, sitting at the king's gate you know, if, if, this isn't just a, uh, a Sunday school story where we're supposed to go. Well, he was just hanging out near the palace. To sit at the gate of any town, any village, and especially at the capital city of the, of the empire means that you are a person of significance. This is what Boaz, remember, he went to the elders who sat in the gate. And they made a decision about, you know, publicly before the elders who sat at the gate of what to do with Naomi's property. And so those who sit at the gate are leading people in the city. They are the elders of the city. 
So Mordecai is a significant person in the city of Susa. People knew who he was. He sat in the gate. And while at the gate, he heard of this plot to assassinate the king. He exposes it through Esther. And Esther makes sure that the king knows it's Mordecai who exposed the plot. And then we're told, just in more trivia, that it was written down in the book of the Chronicles for this king. And so we're supposed to remember that because it could have gone unnoticed. But it's actually written down. That'll be important later on. And so then in chapter 3, the king promotes Haman, the Agagite, to be the prime minister of the nation, the number two guy in the country. And Haman, I'm sorry, now Mordecai decides he can be anybody, he can be the top guy, he could be king. I don't care, I'm never going to bow down to this man. But the king actually issued a decree, every person must bow to him. And Mordecai refuses to. So it says in verse 2, end of the verse, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, again, very significant people of influence, said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? You've been ordered to do this. What is your justification for disobeying the king? And Haman, I'm sorry, Mordecai says, because I'm a Jew. Now, we normally, if you're like me at least, we've always been told that is a valid objection. That as a Jew, he cannot bow down to a man. But I can't find that verse in the Bible. And there are plenty of passages in the scriptures where Jews are bowing down to men. There is nothing in the Bible that says you can't do this. One of the classic examples is when um, Solomon takes the throne and his brother Adonijah prostrates himself to the ground. He is not just bowing, he is on his face in front of the king. And the king doesn't say, you can't do this, this isn't biblical. The king accepts it. This happens all throughout the Bible. There is nothing in the scripture that says that one man cannot bow down to another man. And yet, it seems that he, to us, as we read this, here is a good, believing Jew who is appealing to the Bible, saying it is unbiblical for me as a Jew to bow down to another man. I don't think that's what's happening here. Maybe we want to link this together when Daniel's three friends refuse to bow down to the statue, and we want to say, well, this is the same thing, that Mordecai is being like Daniel's friends. Well, if you go over to Daniel chapter 3, the emphasis here is not on bowing down, but on worshiping. And so in Daniel chapter 3, it says in verse 5, that at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, um, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. That emphasis on worship is repeated in verse 7 and in verse 12. And then finally, the, the three friends, they say in verse 18, 
But even if God does not deliver us, Nebuchadnezzar, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So that is clearly a case of worship. One man is not to worship another man. But there's nothing in Scripture that says you can't show deference and honor to another person. That we are often commanded to do. And I don't see that it's a biblical issue. So it seems like there's something else going on here. He refuses, and then again, not only is he refusing the king's command, but we're told that Mordecai is refusing to listen to what anybody is saying. And, And so there seems to be a stubbornness in this man. He has his principles, he has his conviction, maybe it's even an issue of conscience, but it is not an issue of biblical mandate. That's an important distinction to make. I'm a person, pretty black and white by nature, strong conscience, um, and, and principled, but I, I see in Mordecai something that is not commendable. Principled, man of, con- of conscience, man of conviction, but Mordecai is not being held out as a man of faith. What's driving Mordecai is not a personal relationship with God. There's something else that's pushing this man. And it seems to me it is a dangerous thing when a person is driven by principle, no matter how good those principles are, and not by the word of God and a personal relationship with God. And when that takes place, when a person is ruled by principles, no matter how good they are, that person is a legalist, and he is not living from Christ but he's living from something other than Christ. And it can't end well. Anything that we live from other than Jesus Christ can only have the consequence of death, including principles. Frankly, this is one of the reasons that I get so concerned when I see good Christian homes that are so committed to, to to, to raising their kids with godly principles but they're not leading their kids to a personal relationship with Christ. And when the kids finally get old enough to leave home, they can't get away fast enough because there hasn't been life. There's just been principles. And principles, apart from a personal relationship with Christ, as good as they are, the problem's not the principle, but they will, it can only result in death. And that's what's happening here with Haman. He's, I mean, with Mordecai, he's a great example of that. Sadly enough, it seems to me that he is a person of, of conviction. He's a personal person of influence. He's a person of conscience, but he's not a person of faith. I'm not saying that we're not going to see him in heaven. I'm saying that a personal relationship with God, a personal faith is not what is driving this man. There's a lot... Here, I think that we even need to be careful of when it comes to how we not only relate to our children and, and to those within the body of Christ, but how we also live before the world. Um, right now, I, I, I hate that these messages sometimes, sometimes I hate that they're recorded, but I've, I've, um, 
I've made note in the, in, recently in the past that Torchbearers is going through a transition time now, Torchbearers International Ministry that I'm involved in, and, and, and we are selecting a new general director, and, and I um, can't right now feel, the, I don't have the liberty to vote in favor of the man. And so we've taken a strong vote, and, and the board at his hills voted no to him. I wish that that had been a, a secret ballot, but it wasn't, so everybody in Torchbearers knows that we voted no. So there's no secret to that. Um, but I have to confess that I'm in a bit of a dilemma because there, there, my concerns, our concerns, the board, we don't feel that this is the best man, the right man for Torchbearers at this time. But there is nothing in the Bible that says that we should vote against him. It's our own assessment of the situation. And in our assessment, he's not the best guy. He's not the right guy. But maybe he's who the Lord wants. And we should yield to that. So that's what we have to deal with. And we are dealing with. And I have confessed to you, it's not easy. It's occupying a lot of my thinking. What should we do? We're facing an election right now. We're we're dealing with two candidates that nobody likes when it comes down to it. It's not easy. But we have to, as, as best as we can, in situations where there is no biblical statement, there is no absolute at play, as far as I can tell, like with this man that's being nominated for general director. There is no absolute in God's scripture that says one way or the other how we should vote. And I don't see any absolute in scripture personally that tells us one way or the other who we should vote for in this election. But I do know that God wants to give us some insight into consequences and that he, he wants to direct our steps because God knows the consequences of our choices, including the choice whether to vote or not vote, to vote for candidate A or to vote for candidate B. We don't know all those consequences. We can't know them all. But some things we can know. And if, and if we can be reasonably certain what the outcome would be with this candidate as opposed to this candidate, that's the information that we have. And on the information that we have, we should vote. I don't have perfect information about the candidate for general director for torchbearers. And I certainly don't have perfect information about the two candidates for president of the United States. But what information we do have, we we, we have to consider not just our own conscience and convictions, but what would happen if candidate A is elected as opposed to candidate B, and future generations, other people. Because, see, that's what Haman's not doing. All Haman is thinking is, I hate the guy. I can't support the guy for whatever his reasons were. He's a bad guy. How can I vote for this guy? How can I bow down to this guy? But it's not just about Haman. You see? Now, Haman couldn't have even, I mean, I mean more, it's not just about Mordecai. Mordecai could not have begun to see all the consequences to his refusing to bow down. But he should have understood, if my reason for not bowing down is a Jew, 
then I am implicating all Jews when I refuse to bow down. He should have thought about that. Because he publicly says, my reason for not bowing down as a Jew. Well, buddy, you've just now brought problems on every year, every Jew. This is no longer about you and Haman. This is now about the Jews and Haman. As soon as you made that statement. And I think it's the same thing when we are voting, whether it's political or, or in-house. We need to consider this involves more than us. And we have a responsibility to have some foresight into how this will affect our children and future children if we have candidate A as opposed to candidate B. What was his real reason? What did this have to do if it's not biblical? What does being a Jew have to do with this issue? And that's where we, don't, we would not know the answer to that question if all we had was the book of Esther. But there is a history between the Jewish people and Haman's people. And Haman, it says, was an Agite or an Agagite. Agag was of the Amalekite people. And I went through, I've got too many pieces of paper up here. I went through and and just did a quick history of what the Old Testament tells us about the Amalekites and Agag. They were, in Genesis 36, a descendant of Esau. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing, but neither is necessarily a bad thing. And just being a descendant of Esau did not make you an enemy of Israel. In fact, it could cause you to be protected. And so the descendants of Esau are are primarily the Edomites. And the Edomites were never just um, attacked because they were Edomites. In fact, they were off limits from being attacked because they were viewed as being brothers of Israel. (coughs) But Esau had a son named Eliphaz, and Eliphaz had a concubine, so not even his wife, named Timnah. And through Timnah, the um, Amalek was born. And Amalek becomes a nation of people that, for whatever reason we aren't told, they absolutely hated the Jewish people and took every opportunity from the very beginning to attack them and to destroy them. Any opportunity they had, they went after them, unprovoked. There was never anybody else like this. They were the only people we know of in Israel's history that didn't need any provocation for attacking the Israelites. They just went after them, every opportunity they had. And so God speaks concerning the Amalekites and says, I want their memory blotted off the earth. I want every single man, woman, and child killed of the Amalekites. When they... Um, went into the promise, sent 12 spies into the promised land, and the 10 came back with a bad report. And Moses says, okay, you've ruined it. Now you're going to spend 40 years wandering in the desert. And so the people of Israel go, okay, we acknowledge we messed up. And so they tried to go into Canaan, remember? And when they tried to go into Canaan, they were repulsed. And the scripture says it was the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Now, Canaanite is a general term. Amalekite is more specific. But each time it says there's several instances where it talks about Israel trying to go into the land on their own, apart from God, and each time it mentions it, the Amalekites are mentioned first. The Amalekites repulse them. 
And so then they're wandering in the desert. They don't have any water. Israel doesn't. And God brings water from a rock. Time of victory. Picture of Christ, that Christ has saved them. The, wa- the rock that followed them in the wilderness, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, was Christ. And so it's a picture of Christ and his redemption, his caring for the people providentially. And as soon as that happens, they get attacked by the Malachites. And remember Moses, Joshua's out there fighting the Amalekites, and Moses is standing with his arms up in the air. And, he, and as long as his arms are up in the air, Joshua was winning the battle. But as soon as his arms get tired and he drops his arms, the Amalekites start winning. And so Aaron and Hur are with Moses, and they support his arms. And so as long as the arms are up, they defeat the Amalekites, but they don't utterly destroy them. And the whole significance of this is we're supposed to read this and go, this isn't just a bad people going against a good people. This is a spiritual conflict. And it's being waged on earth, but it's also being waged in heaven. There is something spiritual here in the hatred that the Amalekites have toward the Jewish people. And in other words, I think if we look at the whole history of the Amalekites and the animosity that they had toward the Jewish people, we're supposed to step away from this and go, it is satanic in origin. This is a people like Satan that want the utter destruction of God's people. And God says they must be opposed. They must be destroyed. And it goes like this all the way through Scripture. So in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 17, God says, Write this in a book as a memorial. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And God has done that today. There are no Amalekites today. In Numbers 24, there's a prophecy given concerning Christ and that he will in the future rule over earth. And in that prophecy, it says Israel will rule with Christ. And of all the things God could say in that prophecy, this is something that's going to happen yet in the future. That God's going to rule this earth on the person of Christ, Israel's going to rule with them, and then Amalek will be destroyed. Well, Amalek's already gone. And so again, it seems to be a reference to the satanic disposition of hatred and animosity toward Israel. That is going to come to an end. There's something about Amalek that's more than just a people. It is a, it's a disposition, an opposition that is satanic in its origin. In Deuteronomy 25, God says, Remember what Amalek did to you. Blot out their memory. You must not forget Amalek. And these are just some of the passages. I could go on and on about all the different passages in the Old Testament that mention the Amalekites. But the clarity here is don't you as a Jew forget the Amalekites, what they represent, and what they are capable of. And I think that's the basis that Mordecai says, I'm a Jew, and I know what that man thinks about Jews, and I am not about to bow down to that man. That's the history here. It's not because there is a principle, because there is a command in Scripture that says one man can't bow down to another. This is a Jew who remembers his history. And he goes, that would be like me bowing down to Hitler as a Jew. And Mordecai is going, not going to happen. I am not going to bow down to that man, and it is because of his lineage. That's the issue here. But again, because he is demonstrating no foresight, and all he's thinking about is his own personal conscience, his own personal convictions, he's not seeing how the consequences of his actions upon all his people. He should have bowed down. That's what it comes down to. But he didn't. 
And God knows. And in God's providence, in God's wisdom, he knew this was going to happen. He knew that there's going to be this stubborn Jew who's going to refuse to bow down to this wicked man, and it's going to endanger all of God's people, and so God has Esther put in there as queen. God knew all this. So, it gets a little more interesting. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, per, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Now, he mentions not a word about Mordecai. He could have said to the king, there's a man, Mordecai, who's not bowing down to me. The king would have killed him because he's not obeying the king's command. But Haman as an Agagite, sees an opportunity to destroy all the Jewish people. Maybe he would have done this under any pretext. And, and, he, and Mordecai just happens to be the guy. He has been casting lots. Now, you can read this one of two ways. He has been casting lots from the first month to the twelfth month every day for a year. Or you can read it, he's got his soothsayers with him, And he's got a calendar. And I think this is the better way to do it. And he goes through the calendar on a particular day. He starts with the day that he's on, which happened to be in the first month of the year. And he casts a lot, and it's just yes or no. Is this the day that we should appoint for killing the Jewish people? And they cast the dot, the 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 cast the lot, and the lot it it, it just it's like he would they probably would have had a white stone and a black stone. And the white stone represents yes, and the black stone represents no. So they got two stones in there. You got a 50-50 chance, right? And so is this today? Throw out the two rocks. Black comes out first. Means no, this is not the day. Okay, let's try tomorrow. And they go through a whole calendar. And every single time, it comes out no. Now, that is the providence of God, Right? Because Proverbs says God decides the lot. God knows what the lot is going to do. And so this wicked man, in his own wickedness, says you've got a stubborn Jew and you've got a stubborn Agagite. And you think, how many? I mean, he cast the lot over 100 times, over 200 times, over 300 times he cast the lot. And it comes out no on every single day before he gets a yes. And when he finally gets a yes, he goes to the king and says, King, I want us to destroy all the Jewish people because they don't listen to you. And the day that I want them destroyed is in the 12th month on the 13th day of that month. You see what he did? He's in the first month. So he cast lots through every day of the calendar. And on the 12th month, on the 13th day, he finally got the white stone to come out. Yes. Okay, that's the day that we will destroy the Jewish people. Now, another interesting thing here is the number 13 is an unlucky number for the Babylonians and the Persian people. 
They hated that number. That's probably where we get it today. 13 is an unlucky number. It's a hangover from the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empires. And so on the 12th month, on the 13th day, is when they're supposed to do this. Now, we're not done yet. Another interesting thing here. Look what it says here in verse 11. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours, and the people also to do with as you please. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And it was written, just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each person according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus. So it became law and became known on the 13th day of the first month. Guess what's happening on that day? At least supposed to be happening on that day. The next day... The 14th day of the first month is Passover. And the 13th day, they're slaughtering the Passover lamb. So on the day, all good Jews are supposed to be killing the Passover lamb. They get word, you're going to be killed a year from now. You can see what God's doing here. God is in control of these events. This isn't happen chance. It didn't just happen that they hear about this on the day that they are commemorating Christ is going to die for them. And here on that very day that they are supposed to be slaughtering a Passover lamb in, in, in acknowledgement that God is going to send a Passover lamb to die for them, on that very day they get news that you are going to die 12, 11 months from now on the 12th month on the 13th day. This should have been directing their hearts to the Lord. But there is not a mention here of the Passover. That's for a reason. These people weren't even observing the Passover. It may have been lost on them, the significance of this day. They are an unfaithful people living in a foreign land who have refused to go back to the land that they're supposed to be in. But God, no matter, despite the fact that they are not living honoring their own customs and their own scriptures, God has not forgotten. And he's given these hints to them, these indications to them. If they would just look, God is in control. This hasn't happened on this day by accident. It should have directed their hearts to faith in God. It should have renewed their hearts. But instead, they panic. See, this should have already been a time of celebration. It's the, it's the Passover feast. Nobody is supposed to fast during a feast. That is in Scripture. You don't fast during a feast. And what is Mordecai calling for? A fast. What does Esther call for in the next chapter? A fast. That is contrary to God's Word. They are to be feasting during this time. And this was an opportunity for them to, in their feasting, in commemoration of Christ coming and dying for them, what a beautiful time for them to say, if God is going to send a Savior for us, then He's going to take care of us for today. We have nothing to worry about because we have a God in heaven. It doesn't matter who's sitting on the throne because we have a God in heaven who's sitting on His throne. And this Passover feast should have been reminding them of the hope that they have. But I... And many others, as I've been reading commentaries on this, believe that these people were not celebrating the Passover. 
And they had all but forgotten what this day means. And they were not filled with hope, quite the opposite. And so they're in panic, they're in meltdown, and, and that's why Mordecai, chapter 4, when he learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Maybe I'm being too hard on him. Maybe I'll have to apologize to him one day. I hope not. Not a word of prayer. I mean, most of us honestly would have been in panic. If we had a decree issued by the government of the United States that every Christian is going to be locked up 11 months from now, we wouldn't be very happy campers probably. And that's what's being said, only worse. 11 months from now, every single Jew is going to be annihilated. So I don't want to be too hard on him. But again, I hope that people would say concerning us, and they cried out to their God. And that is missing from the book of Esther. They were crying out, all right, but there is nothing here that says they prayed or they cried out to God. Fasting and weeping and wailing, it says in verse 3. It doesn't say prayer. Esther hears about it, and she's all distraught. She didn't even know why Mordecai's running around in sackcloth and ashes, but it tears her up. Now get this, look at verse 8 of chapter 4. He also gave this go-between, this, this um, eunuch, Hathik, um, who's, who's serving Esther. He, Mordecai gives him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for the destruction of the Jews that he might show Esther and inform her, and get this, and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Mordecai is ordering the queen. He has no right. She's a married woman. She is the queen of the country. This guy has no business ordering her to do anything. And this is the same man who refuses to take orders. If he had just done what the king said and bowed down to Haman, this problem wouldn't even be there. And because of his own stubborn refusal to take orders, they have the problem they have, and he's giving orders to somebody he has no authority over any longer. I'm liking Mordecai less and less. But God's at work. So much of this is wrong. But this is the man God is using. Again, it kind of reminds me of the political situation we're in today. So much of it is wrong. And now it's the choice, soon to be, but who is the one that God wants to use? And to be a part of that, because we have the opportunity to. He has no right to order her to do anything. Esther immediately realizes what this could cost her. Because you don't go see the king unless you're asked. And if you walk into his throne room and you have not been invited, they will kill you. Unless the king lowers his scepter. And she has no reason to think that he'll do that. Remember, this is a maniac of a man. 
He is impulsive. He is cruel. He murders people left and right for much less than what she's about to do. And it is the fixed law of the land. If you enter the king's throne without an invitation, you die unless that scepter is lowered. And so she says to Mordecai, do you realize what you're asking me? And he says, I know exactly what I'm asking you. Verse 13, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you are in the king's palace, that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews because you're a Jew. And the thing is, and I think this is the closest to a faith response in the whole book as of yet concerning Mordecai. I believe maybe Mordecai does understand this is a spiritual battle being taken place. This is satanically inspired. When an entire people are going to be destroyed for no evil that they've done, Satan has to be behind it. And so if Satan is indeed behind this, it doesn't matter whether you're a secret Jew or a known Jew. You're going to die because Satan knows who you are. Verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, And this is where I think the closest statement of faith there is so far in the life of Mordecai. Relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews, for the Jews, from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. God's going to deliver his people. He doesn't say God, but you can see that's where he's going with this. There will be deliverance for the Jewish people. The only question is, will you be part of the process? It might be, the end of verse 14, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Nobody wanted you to be in this position, but you're in it. How it came about is wrong. The whole process, everything about you being queen is wrong. A woman lost her position as queen for wrong reasons. You got selected by wrong methods. You had to have sex with a man you weren't married to. Wrong. All based upon nothing other than looks. Wrong. You kept your identity private. Wrong. We should have been going back to Jerusalem. We didn't. Wrong. Everything about this is wrong, and yet you are in this position at this time for a reason. God is in control. So stop looking at all the things that are wrong. And look at the fact that you have an obligation now to do what is right. And so the most famous statement in all the book of Esther, (coughs) in verse 16, where Esther replies and says, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me, and do not eat or drink for three days. Unbiblical. You are not supposed to fast during a feast. It's like she doesn't even know this Bible says that. And I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And the most famous saying in all the book of Esther, and if I perish, I perish. And that's good. It's still less than what we would hope for. This is certainly not Paul, and I, you know... Again, I don't want to be too hard on Esther. But Paul's statement was, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
And this is the woman who's just going, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. We're all going to die sometime. Might as well be today. Right? This is much more fatalistic than to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as good as this is, she's acknowledging, if I die, I die. Good for you, Esther. We don't know what was in her heart at the time. And we should probably err on the side of giving grace to her and saying this is a statement of faith. I think she expected to die. I don't know that she expected that this was really going to do any good. If I perish, I perish. And it's not a bad thing for us as believers to just have that sense about our lives Death is not that big a deal. And if we die, we die. May we die doing what God wants for us, rather than dying in disobedience. We're all going to die. Better to die in faith and obedience than to die in disobedience. That's how we should be as Christians. And if that's what she's meaning, praise God. But if all she's saying is, well, I've got to die some way, sometime, might as well be now. That's no faith. That's just resignation. And God wants us, I know this in my heart, to be for each of us. God, why have you placed me here? And maybe I'll never know the answer to that. But if I'm in a position today to speak up and do the right thing, and it could cost me my life, then I pray, God, that I would do the right thing. That I would do your will, do the right thing as unto you, and count the consequences. Somebody a lot wiser than me one time said, other people pay the consequences for your disobedience. And other people also pay the consequences for your obedience. Because of Haman's disobedience, all the Jews are paying the consequences. His stubborn refusal to bow down. All the Jews are about to pay the consequences. That's life. If you are disobedient, other people are going to pay the consequences for your disobedience. And if you are obedient, other people are going to pay the consequences for your obedience. That's just a truism. May we be obedient rather than disobedient. There are always going to be consequences to other people. And if we have any foresight, I pray that it would be that we understand choices have consequences. But we not just let the consequences rule us, but be ruled by the truth of Christ in his word and have the wisdom to be able to make a distinction between what he has clearly said and what is our personal conviction, a personal matter of conscience that maybe God wants me to yield on because it isn't a matter clearly stated in his word. And if he doesn't want me to yield on it, then accept the consequences of it. But understand, other people are going to pay the consequences of that as well. These are not easy things. And don't for a minute think that I have all the answers to this, because I don't. But I know God is in control. And I thank the Lord for that. Amen? I'll close us in prayer. God, these things are just too big for us to work out. 
I'm reminded of the psalmist, Lord, that said, I do not trouble myself with great things, meaning those things that we can never search out and understand fully. And God, matters of conscience where your word is not clearly speaking to that are very difficult for us. I struggle with it all the time, as you know, Lord. I pray, God, that we would have your wisdom to know when to yield our personal convictions because your scripture is not being violated. And when you would have us to stand on those convictions and face the consequences, even when those consequences impact those we love. And I thank you, God. You understand how we struggle. And we don't see perfectly. We don't fully understand. We never will. We are finite. You are the only one who's infinite, with infinite understanding. And I thank you, O God, that we are not a people left to our own insights and foresight, our own wisdom. We trust you. We make the decisions, God, that we believe you're wanting us to make. But God, our trust is truly in you. I thank you that even when we maybe make the wrong choice, you're not undone. You're not wringing your hands. And you still, God, can work all things together for good and bring glory to yourself, God, in every decision that we make. Thank you, God, for being the sovereign God that you are, powerful, wise, Above all, Lord, and the only one who is truly worthy of all honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.